We are The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. Welcome to today's pep talk, where we'll take just 20 minutes to interview leading experts from around the world who share actionable know-how, insights and life lessons. To hear these incredible insights, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music or anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can simply visit thepurposefulproject.com, sign up to our mailing list and get the podcast in your inbox every single week. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Maybe we could kick off by you kindly telling the audience listening a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, so my name is Devin. I'm, I guess the best way to describe me is I'm a bit of a designer, I'm a bit of an engineer, and that's led me down a path of being a bit of an entrepreneur at the same time. I've uh, accidentally started a startup when I was at university, and that then led to this sort of career of, of building companies around ideas that I wanted to work on. It became a very liberating way of like trying to experiment and learn new stuff all at the same time. And so um, I, I found my first business at a university, which was an animation startup called Fuzzwitch that led on after it being a spectacular failure, which is in a story in its own right, that led on to me founding my second business with two amazing co-founders called Lisp, which was a fashion marketplace, uh, tech business, um, based in London and still going strong. That then led to me founding a third business called founder centric, which was around education design to help people do company stuff, do entrepreneurship in a much more enlightened and productive way. And then finally, that leads me to where I'm today, which is uh, sort of wearing two hats of starting a fourth business called Useful, where we're building an independent publishing platform, but also now trying to give back and work on the other side of the table by being a, a venture partner, sort of an expert in residence at a fund called Seedcamp here in London. Wonderful um, what you're doing. And um, I love the name Useful, by the way. It's, uh, yeah. it, it's such a good word. It's so positive. Well, it's, it's the purpose of the company. It's like we're, we're here to help authors create nonfiction that's useful, not just cool ideas that no one cares about. Just out of interest, uh, can you trademark useful? How do you, how do you protect well, your idea? we can't trademark it. We're using it as a trading name. But no, it's, uh, I think our lawyers, who and thankfully we talked to before we tried to do it, were like, it's not a great idea. <laughs> Every time someone uses the word useful, someone has to pay, pay you 30p. That in itself would be a good business, wouldn't it? But, um, I think or a terrible business. Oh, terrible business! Language from I, I bring this up because um, I actually had a business called Foodie, and um, mm. we we did really well based out in Asia, and it flew. And then someone came out of the woodwork saying they owned the word Foodie, they trademarked the word, and so they actually had the legal right to have all the income we'd ever had, in assuming we'd passed off on them. So, it, so it's quite a scary moment. And it, I, I thought Foodie, in my mind, was a word in the dictionary that no one could trademark. So in my mind, it was you know it was yeah. no no problem to use it. We were trading as something else, but operating as Foodie. Anyway, so when I hear useful, which I absolutely love, it makes me think of that horrible experience where someone cyber squatted our name yeah but well, um, the, the full name of the company is useful books so that's how we books. sort of got around that yeah well um so um incredible experience you, you've got building businesses and i and i think the subject today i, I think i want to pick apart a little bit with you is is this concept that you hear a lot which is build it and they will come i think this yeah. gets thrown around a lot uh, pretty much in every every part of building a business these days. So, you know, but what do you feel about this? What, what's the truth? Well, I mean, our, my first business, which I, I just recently described as a spectacular failure that was built on that tenant. Um, you know, this was the classic at a university for people who academically were quite brilliant. Like we wrote papers, we did well in our, in our academic courses and we've set out to build a video game studio. And our view was like, Oh, we're, we're obviously amazing at building video games. Like, 
we just got to design the best game ever and people will flock to us. Like they'll love what we're creating. And that's what happened. And, and if anything, we actually ended up raising a bit of financing from Y Combinator, which is like a well-known Valley Accelerator. Um, and then was surrounded by amazing mentors who taught us great things about technology, about thinking about startup business models and stuff. But this only went on to sort of influence this idea that if we create the perfect thing, we're going to be billionaires, which almost never happens in the video game industry anyway. But like, that's, that's the mentality we were fed. And, and so we did the classic thing of we hid in our office. That sounds more glamorous. We hid in our bedrooms because we couldn't afford an office yet. And we built video game tools for months on end. And I remember sort of having these very brief discussions of like, where are we going to find players? Where are we going to find people to use these tools, these animation tools we're building to build video games with? Where, where are we going to find these people? And I have to put my hand up. Like I was probably one of the worst instigator here of just brushing that under the carpet and being like, ah, we'll figure it out later, but it's so good. Like, look how beautiful our code is. And every demo we'd give to investors or potential partners, they loved what we built because we were good at programming. We were good engineers, but we never asked critical questions. Like, are you going to buy it? Do you have players you're going to put on it? Things like that. Um, because we didn't even think about asking that. And so when we ultimately were pushed to a launch and the way we were pushed to launch was hilarious. Paul Graham, one of our investors basically one day was fed up with us, not shipping stuff. So he just told a journalist that one of the startups he funded is about to launch. We didn't know this until the journalist called us and said, Hey, I hear you might be launching a new startup soon. We'd love to learn more. And we're like, Oh crap. Okay. Guess we're launching something. And we launched it and, and lo and behold, no one cared. Like we had a great article in TechCrunch, and we got lots of clicks from that, but no one stayed, no one cared. And, and what happened was we had built something spectacular from a technical perspective, from an academic perspective, but no one was looking for it. No one had the problems we were trying to solve. No, like we had built some procedural animation software, which was very interesting, but no one needed it. It was like a wasted space. So we had devoted, you know, half a year of our life to building this piece of software that no one cared about. And that was sort of my first real taste of the truth of what it's like to build something for someone else, which is like, you need someone else to build it for. It can't just be you. It's not a one-sided experience. You need an audience you have an active dialogue with and be that like an audience who's looking for something fun to play with or an audience, you know, customer who wants something to be productive with. You need that other component or, or you're, you're, you're not building anything real. I think this is such an interesting problem. I know a lot of my listeners have an idea and they're like, okay, let's just go and make it. I mean, it, they, again, these quotes that float around that are popular, that Henry Ford, if you asked him, yeah. if he'd asked his customers what they want, they would have said a faster horse, right? So you, you buy into that narrative that people don't know what they want. Steve Jobs, same, Apple, if I'd asked them what they want, they would have never have known that they wanted a one button, no keyboard device, right? Like they don't yeah. know what they yeah. want. So you build it. Isn't, isn't that the problem? The, the premise of, the, of those examples that float around that causes this confusion for people? Yeah. So the Henry Ford quote I love because I think there's a lot of wisdom inside of it, which is if you asked a person for exactly what they want, they'll tell you a bunch of bullshit because they don't really know what they want. It's hard for the average person to sort of really be introspective and step away from themselves and look at their environment and say, what do I need to make my life happier, stronger, better, more efficient, safer, or whatever they're worried about. But if you ask a different question, which is basically like, what do you currently do and how do you do it? And what problems have you run into? Then you as the entrepreneur or the product designer or the creative can extrapolate that. You can go, okay, given where they're at today, could I design something that makes that easier? Could I design something that makes that more fun? 
could I design something that makes it cheaper? And so to put it back on that Henry Ford quote, which is it's perfectly apt, it's like, you know, if you looked at what a farmer was doing back in the 1900s or 1890 or whenever Henry Ford designed the original Model T, he'd look at them and say, oh, you have a horse. Like, what's, what's the problem with horses? Well, they poop too much. They're expensive to feed. They're slow. Um, they need to sleep. Like, you can't just wake a horse up at any time and just start riding it. Well, maybe you can. I don't know. I never had a horse. But, like, you look at all the things that are wrong with horses, and then you go, what do they do with horses? Well, they go to market. They drag a plow. Like the, It's like, okay, and then you combine these. Like, what would be a better version of a horse? Well, one that didn't wasn't an animal, removal lack hair, one that didn't poop, one that maybe ran on something more energy efficient, which would have been gasoline at the time, sadly. But, like, you start to compone it, and you can start to see where a car could come from, right? Like, you can see where a car-like object could develop from that thought process. And that's the difference is like there was an audience. It was people who needed cheaper form of transportation. Let's design that. But the other thing. And then Henry Ford leveraged like new tech, the internal combustion engine to build a better thing. Yeah. Well, he didn't even own the patent. That's the other interesting thing, right? The car was painted by someone else. So when you start looking at it, you know, he wasn't even his idea, of course. And he actually was patent, patent infringement. Uh, issues at the beginning because someone else owned the car the I right didn't know to the that. Car. that's great yeah and uh well, I didn't I, invent the engine but i didn't realize it was actual like a patent there was a patent on the car so he he broke the, the he broke the law by by making a car and, and got into some trouble over it but but i guess the other thing that's interesting about this conversation this concept of like build it and people will come and how that's not true is also related to like mm. he wanted people to buy his car so he had to pay his factory workers more money so they could afford to buy his car, right? So you create yes. the market sometimes. So that's the other side of it, isn't it? So, how, so your, your point that you're saying there, you know, ask the right questions, I guess. Right? What problems do you have as opposed to here's the solution I have built for you, right? That, that, that's how you don't fall into this trap. Is that, is that a good interpretation? Sort of. It's a two part. I think like a lot of a lot of what I learned in my startup career um, is actually encapsulated well by my my original. So when Fuzzwitch, my first business shut down, myself and my co-founder, Rob, sort of took very different approaches to dealing with that grief. Like it was a we thought we had hit upon a hit maker when we built this business. And so when it all ultimately failed, um, it kind of hit us both quite hard. It was emotionally like a really scarring event, Um, but it also taught us a lot about what we want to do. And so the way I kind of solved it is I just jumped back into my second company and tried to like not make the same mistakes again and sort of work through the postmortem in real time. And, and Rob actually reflected on that and did a lot of research around how do good entrepreneurs approach building stuff? How do they choose their idea? How do they vet that idea? How do they make progress without overinvestment and things like that? And he actually ended up writing a book called The Mum Test, which in, encapsulates, I think, a very similar thought process that I have today, which is first you want to learn and then you want to confirm that learning's real. And then you do that over and over and over again, sort of learn and validate, learn and validate. And you do that through experimentation, through conversations, through research, but you do it in really granular steps. So even if you have a super grand vision, like, oh, I want to invent the future of air travel, right? You don't start by building the most perfect plane. You start by looking at, well, how do people currently travel? What are their budgets? Like, why do they travel? Maybe air isn't actually the best choice, but they use it because it's the one they know, you know, like there's all these questions and you can start building experiments. And so the, the, the way I approach it is like, you do start building from day one. It's just, you're building stuff that tests the assumptions you're guessing. So when you build something new, you do have to take a leap of faith. You are building something novel and, and, and interesting. You just got to start to think about how you can test that novel and interesting thing without investing all your life savings, a ton of other people's money and a bunch of time on a bad idea. And there's tons of ways to vet that before you get to that stage. 
we have to put mum test in the uh, links below so that everyone can get that book because it is it is brilliant and uh, it's it's really important I think to understand like you're like you're saying how how it perhaps it's more like iteration isn't it I mean things like Facebook mm-hmm. for example were not the first social network MySpace of course was there before but I think what Facebook did do and I'm not a fan of Facebook today personally but but they did yeah. reiterate over time right they listened to what the market want and features like are you single or not and stuff like that in the early days were really what made it succeed over things like MySpace right all, all great products are iterative, right? They all start with an amazing spark. And, and I think this is one of the things that a lot of growing startups wrestle with. They start with the amazing spark. And when you get that right, then the question is, well, what do we do to improve or strip away or, or vice versa? So like anything great that you can hold in your hand, the iPhone included, you know, harkening back to the Steve Jobs reference, that is the process of intense iteration with a key view of like what you want to provide and then looking at how that bounces off your market, like how people respond to it, like how they use it. You know, Apple famously is a bit stubborn on that, but they still do yield to it in time. Like they do realize they have to change stuff. And taking validation for your idea, like Paul Graham, I'm such a fan of his. I follow him on Twitter. I just tweeted him a little while ago and asked him to come on my podcast show. He replied saying yes. I felt validated because he's he's just <laughs> brilliant, right? So when he's behind your original business as well, you, in a way you feel that's validated, but he's, he's still you, you still have to do it, right? The iteration still falls on you. So sometimes mm-hmm. you can get validation from the wrong place, i.e. you haven't got validation yes. from a client. 100%. So, so you look for validation. I mean, I have that as well. When you raise money, you're like, oh, we've just raised money. So, oh, well, this must be a good business. Kind of the wrong person to ask. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good business, right? So a lot of people listening, I know yeah. that, that, that that's their mindset. I'll raise money and that will validate my business. Well, if you've got a customer that will pay you for what you're doing, you know. Yeah, and it's easy to raise money when you have that data to back it up, right? Totally. The best investors aren't investing. Like, yes, the craziness and the scale and the scope of the idea is definitely part of what is in that equation. But it's also the team's ability to execute, right? Like that's a huge part, especially in the earlier days before there's like real data. Like, can you sell it? Do people care about this product? And so like the team's ability to execute is that ability to like absorb information from the market and synthesize that into experiments and ideas that test their big propositions to you know, prop it up. Or, and this is totally great too, realize they're going the wrong direction and quickly switch and go, oh, all these assumptions we have are t- totally wrong. We need to like reformulate and rethink what this means for us. I think this, this knowledge, this point here, anyone that actually, to me, it's like consciousness. You, once you realize what you're talking about here, I reckon most businesses will succeed after that. Because most people don't do enough of this critical thinking in the early stages of building a business and then they go build something mm. and spend years doing it and then you know like flogging a dead horse to continue with the uh, henry ford analogy yeah. um so you know instantly it makes me want to you know invest in useful books how, how did what's different how did you how did you approach um i love the tagline by the way making books better uh yeah. how, how did you how did you validate this idea how did you know this wasn't going to be a repeat of your previous enthusiasm um, so useful books evolved out of, you know, to, to use a very common startup phrase, like eating our own dog food. So Rob obviously published the mum test and he did that through a self-publishing, mostly out of n- lack of knowledge of how the publishing market works. He wrote the book first. And then at that stage, he was like, oh, I might as well just publish it myself. I haven't like leveraged any of the benefits of big publishing houses, like editors and support and checks and things like that. So I might as well just go the whole way. And that was a learning experience for him. After we exited Founder Centric, uh, he and I sat down and wrote a second book together called The Workshop Survival Guide, which started off sort of as like a, a summary of how we built a really good education business as 
a bit of a guide for other people to do it. And through editing and through what we call beta reading, giving people a very early copy of the book, not so much for them to read, but sort of the feedback on the content, we realized that no one cared about the business part, but they hyper cared about the workshop design part, which is what made our sort of consultancy a bit different than others. And so we're like, okay, well, let's just strip away the other 80% of the text and like really focus on this hyper useful piece of knowledge, which is how do you design great workshops? And so we went through this whole process. And after we launched that book, he and I were sort of ready to start another company. We're like, yeah, we're both kind of ready, which we start. And we, we sort of did this, you know, listing out big ideas we care about, listing out stuff that we'd like to work on, both from like a technical perspective, but also from just a personal knowledge perspective. And we quickly realized that there was definitely something in publishing because the way we published our books was quite unique. And a lot of people fed back on like our approach was quite unique. And so we started thinking about like, what does a new, what does a new publishing house work look like? And so the first thing we cared about was like, does anybody else want this? Are there any other people out there who want to be an author who haven't been able to do it yet? Especially in this nonfiction books that have a sharp learning outcome space. You know, business books, how-to books, DIY books, things like that. And so we started a community. Um, Rob started tweeting and blogging about it. We've created a Slack. We started talking about this book. Rob started working on a book around how you write these books, very meta. Um, and so our idea here was like, if people care about the book material, like how to do it, that probably means they'll care about how to format it, how to publish it, how to beta read it, like all these other steps in a publishing tool chain that we sort of are calling like the useful book tool chain. And so we did the first experiment, which was Rob started working on the draft. I started working on the community bit and we just threw it out there to see who'd come back. And this was very quick to do. Obviously writing a book takes work, but Rob likes writing. So that was more fun for him, at least at the beginning. And the community stuff's easy to set up, you know, a couple of weeks of work to put it all together. And we chucked it out there. And before we knew it, we had like one or two people in the community and we had a few people reading it. And this was like real evidence. This is people who are getting value from the book and getting value from the community. And then so we sort of stepped back. And this stage, we're not ready to start a business yet. We just did this to see what, what was going on. We had no name for the business yet. The book was sort of half written, but we saw people actually touching and using it. And we're like, oh, you know what? This might be something. Let's be a little more serious about this. Like, what's the next step? Well, okay, let's start thinking about one of the first pieces of software because I was itching to get back into software development. And so the first piece of software we thought about was a tool to help them do beta reading, which was a relatively unique way of doing um, community-led sharing and building in public for a book. And so we knocked up, um, along with a, a really good friend, uh, Mark, we knocked up this super simple, like super janky prototype. It would error and crash every three or four times someone tried to use it, but it was enough to get the idea across. And he, he actually marked in most of the building built in the weekend. Um, and we threw it out there and we started using it to beta read the book that Rob was working on to talk about writing useful books. And it worked. People started using it and got any feedback. And we're getting amazing feedback from other people who had tried to write around this tool and we're like, wow, okay, so the tool kind of works too. And I'm making this sound very simplistic. There was lots of little failure steps in between this as we figured out what the feature set was and stuff like this. But after, after about six months of sort of building in our spare time around our normal jobs, normal you know, lives, we realized, oh, there's actually a business here. Like we sort of proven there's kind of a community of authors looking for this. We've kind of proven they care about the philosophy we have, which we put in the book. And they kind of care about the tools which becomes the revenue model. Oh shit, let's, let's put this together and see what happens. And so over a period of a few weeks, Rob and I glued it all together under useful books, launched a very simple site that we just built from, like, from scratch, simple HTML, nothing fancy, nothing interactive. 
stuck at Gumroad, join the community, and I think it's 19 bucks a month or buy the book, 20 bucks, and launched it and shared it on the spaces that we've been meeting people on, Indie Hackers, Reddit, other writing Slack groups. And the response was okay. It wasn't amazing, but it was okay. Some people definitely, you know, some people definitely uh, engaged and, and even bought. And that and that's a great validation signal. When you give someone something just carte blanche and say, do you want this? And it's based off all this research we've done. And they say, yeah, okay, I'll pay you money for that. That was the signal where we're like, all right, this is a business. Let's, let's get serious about this. And that's where we are today. And we've done a lot of stuff since then. But it was very much just like, what are these small little experiments we can do that build up confidence in our idea? Because Rob and I were fully ready to be like, this doesn't work. Yeah, screw it. Like, next idea. <laughs> no, and and I, can, I can relate to the business model. I've, I've written a book and I've gone through the whole cycle of like you know, having a publisher and then frankly wanting to change it to something I wasn't proud of or wanted to put out there in the world. So drop that and kind of go the hybrid model Again, you know, where you, you pay, but you don't really feel like there's any real yeah. help. You know, it's still up to you to, to make it all happen. So then you go to the self-publishing model and then you feel all, all on your own, completely kind of uh, like it's scary. You don't want to, you know, you put a lot of effort into creating a book and, and you don't want no one to read it <laughs> and, and for it to be in there with millions of other, you know, frankly, rubbish, uh, just self-published uh, junk so so you know the, the, what you're describing in your business is something i can personally relate to as needing right now actually and and i, I can I bet yeah. a lot of people do and i think i think that's such a great example of like build it on there will come what you're talking about there is kind of you spent six months six months figuring out what it was and what people needed right that's that's a long yeah. time <laughs> the groundwork yeah, was done Every week was basically an experiment or something that was going to move forward our confidence or force us to reconsider. So it was six months end to end, but it was six months that built up a gradual chunk stack of proof that we can point at as the owners and go, well, this is worth our time. Mm. You know, yeah. like this, this is an interesting problem. And, and it's a problem that we care about, you know, basically taking an industry that whose incentives are all misaligned from the author's perspective, yeah. I would argue. I, I and, agree. And realign them, basically do the classic, let's build the blue jeans and pitchforks. I hate, it's such a cliche phrase, but that's what we're trying to do. It's like, it's not about the royalties. It's about giving them tools that are productive from day one and then let them take care of the royalties themselves because they did it all. Yeah. No, I love it. And uh, well, again, we'll put the links to usefulbooks.co uh, down below the broadcast anyone wants to check out you. what you're doing we'll put the workshop survival guide link down below i think that you know that these things are, are useful tools for our community and I, I know we only have you for 20 minutes so i want to uh, say thank you devin for giving us time today to share your insights and knowledge really uh, uh, very kind of you and yeah so that, that, well, yeah thank you so much Devin. i can't say more than that i appreciate it simon it's been my pleasure thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to pep talk today powered by the purposeful project if you found it interesting, please give us a review and follow us. In addition, you can sign up to our website and get loads more free entrepreneur knowledge, as well as get access to Pep Talk and the Purposeful Project podcast direct in your inbox every week.